do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. For a seven-year research journey around the world into accurate, auditable, cheap, and real-time soil health data, specifically soil carbon, but also other aspects of soil health, led to finding a very promising technology in Texas of all places and co-founding a company to bring this technology to market. But what does it have to do with chemical residues in our food, contaminations and testing the hairs of Japanese parliamentarians and their children? Enjoy! This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, wear and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in Regen Ag. That is gumroad.com slash investing in Regen Ag. Or find the link below. Welcome to another episode today with soil information. They're on their way of making it possible to measure a holistic set of parameters related to soil risks and soil health accurately in situ, which I think means on site, and in real time by using electric magnetical, no, electric chemical sensors that are set to enable auditable measurement of soil carbon and soil health. Welcome, CEO Henry. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Con. And I should really practice intros more, but I always mess them up. Um, but we're going to unpack most. Fantastic. I think we're going to unpack <laughs> most of that. But first, let's start with with the personal question I always like to ask: How did you end up focusing on soil so much? Uh, it's been a it's been a, a lifelong thing with me. So uh, I grew up on a on a farm in West Wales and have been connected to to farming in some way all my life. So. The soil. But it could also have meant that you run away very far because I know quite a few that grew up on farms and they chose very different career paths. Let's say. I, I, I did run away. So it's a good point. I did run away. I ran away all the way across Europe, um, ended up in Bulgaria, which is where I live most of the time, um, and became a journalist meanwhile. But, but farming has always been part of my life, even when I was a journalist. So uh, the, the the soil has been key at every stage um, and, and the farm always drags me back. And when did, let's say, soil regeneration or soil health come into play? Actually, I mean, growing up, we're, we're, we have a, a sheep farm here, um, sheep and, and we used to grow barley as well. So there was a a lot of connection to keeping sandy soil um, specifically healthy, sandy soil being pretty difficult to grow many things on. And so that was, that was where the source of interest in how to keep soil healthy began. But actually through other work uh, led me back into the kind of regenerative space. Um, most of it being involved with um Anything, anything related to um, contaminants in soil, to uh, the, the soil um, structure itself. Um, my my work when I when I left the family farm, uh, I became a journalist, uh, and I was looking at agricultural contaminants for for many years to to see how we could reduce reduce inputs. So when when we've been looking at, uh, as, as, um, as a journalist at exactly uh, 
what how to reduce inputs um, in different European agricultural systems and uh, the main effects of inputs uh, such as pesticides being uh, on the soil microbes and on human health. So was that the angle, like the human health angle or the soil health angle? Because I can imagine, I mean, now maybe more, but soil health and the connection to pesticides wasn't really a big story. I, I'm imagining as a journalist, it's not that you pitched that story. Like, hey, let's look at the effect of pesticides on the soil microbiome. I mean, maybe now you get some interest, but I'm imagining a few years ago, not so much. Yeah, it was definitely first related to human health um, and then led to the sources of uh, effects on human health. So whether that be from food or from uh, from water, and that obviously all leads back to the soil. So yeah, um, def definitely that path uh, from a point of view of how how we looked at um, the effects of of things like glyphosate and other other herbicides on on human health, and then looked back uh, to see what what was causing causing those issues. Um, but the, the the general focus has shifted from just human health to all of the different aspects, uh, soil health being the the main one. Um, that was at least when I was a journalist. Yeah. What triggered, I mean, maybe this is too personal, but what triggered that focus on health and the connection to pesticides um, was there, or was it an interesting story, an interesting threat, let's say to, to start pulling and, and ended up of course uh, falling down the rabbit hole or into the rabbit hole. But what was that, that initial spark to, to go into that? Because it's not that you grew up on a, let's say, a large GMO corn soy rotation farm in the Midwest, and you've been exposed to uh, those pesticides, at least, or herbicides. Yeah, it's a it's a personal story, but in a different way. Because my my family's been um, really involved with uh, trying to keep contaminants uh, at low levels especially in food and in water for four generations. Oh, wow. uh, my great grandfather who uh, invented the neon light and he was also um, one of the, one of the scientists who discovered the Nobel gases. And he, after working as a chemist all his life, after the second world war, he started one of the first movements against uh, the overuse of toxic chemicals in Europe. Uh, I think it was in 1955 or similar sometime around that stage. And since then, my family's basically been uh, obsessed with this whole, mm -hmm. this whole topic. So rightfully so. Yeah. 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 Um, my parents campaigned against things like PCBs and, and, uh, and GMOs. Um, and, and that led me into into working in the journalist space to try and get as much uh, as much concentration on that area as possible. And, and then somehow, I'm not saying you switched, but it definitely switched gears or, or paths at least, and, and focusing on the soil health side and also the regeneration of uh, or restoring of, and, and not saying that the campaigning. And the activist role there isn't important, but it's a very different role to choose. And um, on the venture side and, and on the sensor side, and like it's a, it feels like almost a different world, although we need both. What, what triggered that? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? we have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. It was actually because I was um, advising some of the, the governments in Europe, um, I was working with some of the auditors as well on looking at agricultural metrics as a whole. So that, that one of those parts, although a very small part, was contaminants uh, through agriculture. Um, but then we started concentrating uh, more in our, in our small company in Bulgaria, um, concentrating on looking at uh, what other aspects need to be involved in sustainable agricultural metrics. 
um, so that money can flow back to farmers as much as possible uh, who are doing a, a good job, job at reducing inputs, at uh, keeping their soil healthy, at uh, making sure that the, the water use in their, on their farm is sustainable, but many metrics. So I, I, I've advised uh, different groups across uh, industries, so from pension funds to, uh, to governments, um, on which metrics are important. And I, I remember one specific meeting that was uh, with a couple of auditor groups about seven years ago. One auditor group who was uh, connected to Ernst Young and another one um, uh, actually was the PwC themselves who were in a meeting talking about soil carbon. And I hadn't concentrated much myself on soil carbon um, up until that stage, other than knowing that organic matter was vital for for uh, keeping keeping crops healthy and keeping um, systems healthy on on farms, um, and they were in a meeting with a with a a bank um, about carbon credits, and it, it it was shocking to me that a lot of their conversation was about the inaccuracy of soil measurement as a whole, but specifically soil carbon, and that they had been using different methods for the four years previous to that um, to try and start auditing soil health and had failed on pretty much every angle. Which makes the credit part a bit difficult, yeah. Yeah, well, it was it was credits. It was also how to integrate with government subsidy systems, uh, all of these things. Um, and the bank had lost uh, a lot of money on a system because of a lack of accurate measurement. And so after that meeting, I talked to my friend at PwC who said, uh, Henry, uh, you're good at investigating stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, I wonder if, if you'd take on a path of looking at different, uh, different agricultural uh, metrics and specifically soil carbon and how you measure them, uh, measure measure them, and with what technologies. So, which sounded like fun, of course. Yeah. It, uh, it sounded like a lot, a lot of fun, and and it has been. Yeah. Um, basically, when, when was this? More or less, like you know, it was about seven years ago. Oh wow! About so they were already years. talking about carbon credits, soil carbon credits at that time, and, and not getting what they wanted. Yes, and uh, a lot of that was actually related to things like Australian carbon credits that mm -hmm. I know had come in at that stage, uh, but in different parts of the world. So I then uh, set off looking at technologies specifically for soil carbon and specifically for soil organic carbon um, in different places around the world. It's taken me on trips uh, to different, different parts of the globe, um, looking at different universities, whether that be in the Netherlands or in Moscow or in Sao Paulo, um, to look at infrared, uh, gamma technologies, satellite technologies. And I'd say probably after about three or four years of concentrating on looking at different methods, um, a lot of that in my spare time. Um, yeah, because I was going to ask, like, did PWC, no, no, no one was paying you for this. Or? No one was paying me to do it, so it was definitely at my spare ah, time. Yeah. And uh, sounded more fun than it was. Yeah, to yeah. yeah. And 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 then I, uh, I, I was becoming a little bit despondent, to tell you the truth, with this mission, um, just because of uh, what was out there from a technology point of view, and the levels of accuracy against what has always been the gold standard uh, being soil cores and then trying to compare it with different things. Um, we looked at satellites uh, in detail and found them somewhere. I mean, just because of how they work and how they only look at probably the first 10 centimeters on average, um, that they were coming up anywhere between 50 and 70% accurate against soil cores most of the time. Um, doesn't sound good enough. Yeah. Which which just wasn't good enough from an auditability standpoint, which is what I was coming at it from. Um, and we also looked at uh, infrared, which was really great in lab. Uh, it was it was getting better and better in lab over that period. 
but when you started taking it out of lab, there were there was you know issues with things like moisture and humidity and uh, the need for a technician always to be going along and taking the the um, taking the readings and the same with gamma. So those were the kind of main three technologies that I've looked at. Um, and then I got on to uh, uh, a piece of luck, actually, because I, I called a professor from um, from Texas who was studying uh, electrochemical sensors for contaminants. Actually, I was uh, atrazine, specifically atrazine pesticide. Um, and they were looking at atrazine using these sensors and so I called them up on the phone just out of the blue and said... Still in your spare time, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, I, I, I called uh, Dr. Shalini Prasad, who's a professor there, and she said, I've been working on basically the biomedical area um, for the past 15 years. So uh, kind of next generation biomedical sensors for things like glucose and cortisol for the measurement of these substances in the human body in real time um, and totally non-invasive. And what uh, piqued my interest was the fact that she was doing it without the need for very much moisture at all um, for the electrochemical readings. And she uh, she said, this, this has started to be used in the environmental space for the first time, literally a few months before I spoke to her uh, for pesticides. And I said, well, what about soil? Do you think that soil would be uh, easy to measure using this type of sensor? Because they're affordable, uh, they're very accurate, they're medically accurate for the for the medical space. Um, and her reaction was great. She said, uh, yes, uh, in fact, it should be easier than measurements for the for the human body. So since Why then... Is that? Uh, partly because there's so much change constantly in the human body, uh, okay. um, like you know, every so some of these uh, some of these hormones and and some of these um, ionic substances. Than, yeah. yeah, I mean, you can have a change every second. So um, that's that's basically the the thought process. And she she came uh, she came up with a a protocol for looking at what was possible. Um, Still thinking on the pesticide side, I think. Or yeah, you already triggered her on saying, let's look at... Thinking our, across the environmental space in uh, for, for uh, contaminants to soil health, to, uh, to water. So her, probably about three or four months later, she got back in touch regarding soil specifically. And we have been talking most days since... Um, regarding how to measure uh, lots of the different aspects of soil health using electrochemical sensors, um, which to my knowledge had not been done before that stage in any format. So um, that led to the start of soil information uh, a year and a half ago, uh, where we we got we raised a round of funding uh, back back at that time to do a full research and development project with the University of Texas at Dallas, uh, which is where Dr. Shalini Prasad works. Um, so, and what led to that? Because you could also report it back to um, like, look, I've done a long research, but I came up with a, a potentially valuable. And, and relevant path to to do soil health measurement at scale and accurately to at that point maybe the the, the big accountancy firms or others because at that point I think a year and a half ago or two years ago the attention for our soil carbon credits had had exploded completely. Mm -hmm. um, what made you decide to start a company? I think the 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 aspect of being able to imagine because it was only in the imagination at that time to imagine the ability to measure uh soil carbon um ph moisture other soil health aspects in real time 
from a point of view of leaving a sensor in the ground um, so that you could almost measure the heartbeat of the soil uh, was was just too interesting for me. And after I'd reported to a number of the people I was working for as a consultant, and they all showed so much interest in the idea, um, I, th- I thought it was it was time to to take the next step and to to launch um, a company with my with my co-founders who have also been in the space for a long period of time uh, working at the Carbon Underground. Um, and there's my two fellow co-founders actually launched the Carbon Underground um, over a decade ago. So we've, we'd all had a lot of interest in the space and hadn't really seen anything that could create auditable soil health data before this moment. Yeah, because that would be my non-expert question we, with the podcast and also others, you get approached, I think, quite a bit with sensors here, sensors there that promise a lot or um, a bit with, like they say, with input companies that promise, uh, like, if you only use this, everything will change. I'm always very skeptical um, because I just don't know enough about the input space to to understand what is, uh, what is snake oil and what is really interesting. Um, so please don't say that anymore. But for the sensor space as well, like, what makes this unique and why hasn't it been done until now? Like, what's why is now the moment where we're talking May 2023? What makes this period unique to to do this compared to maybe five years ago when when also there was attention for this? Or why why are we ready now? And why this specific technique and approach? Yeah, and just to say, I'm the ultimate skeptic myself. So that's why it took me so long to to do due diligence on on so many different methods and to be so disappointed at that stage, actually. Um, and the, I think the, the, the reason to do this now uh, is purely because it's become available. This should have been done many, many years ago. I think a lot of, a lot of uh, focus in the ag tech world, especially is on the, me- on improving the methods that already exist. Right. So, uh, there've been infrared and gamma and satellites around for many years in the architect space for looking at things, um, and there's been a constant uh, there's been a constant need to improve those methods, um, and not much looking outside of the box. And so, because this comes from the biomedical space only and has literally not really been used in agriculture before, um, there's there's kind of a, 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 a moment here um, that can meet what the market needs uh, without using and improving technologies that will never, in my opinion, get to where they need to be. Mainly um, on that accuracy piece. Is that uh, like what is the ball yeah, being I mean, able to three, I'd say I'd say three pieces. So there's accuracy is key. Um uh, also affordability so the ability to to use sensors that are gonna or, or some methods are going to cost you know a, a really uh, small amount of money um, and and also on uh, the ease of use so w- without the need for technicians to be involved or labs to be involved like the um, one you were mentioning before Adam. yes the technician all the time to uh, yes yeah. infrared yeah because all of all of those harm scalability, right? Um, and so, I, I don't I don't even know how you scale some of these technologies, because they might be able to be scaled, for example, in the Midwest, as you mentioned earlier, but to be scaled outside and around the world and in areas in the global south. Uh, I I just can't see how you scale a lot of these technologies at all. So, um, yeah, I'd say the time is now because uh, there's a need for scaling accurate, affordable, auditable soil data for so many different stakeholders now. Um, And I I think there's lots of these stakeholders are building like data platforms and all sorts of other things on top of a base, but the base is very weak, which is actually the measurement uh, uh, 
part of this whole picture, right? So, um, yeah, that's that's hopefully where we fit in there. And take us to to the field. I mean, you, you mentioned we we were in a, a research phase to we raised some funding for that and, and did that for the last. I think you mentioned eighteen months, but maybe I got the the number wrong. But now, as as you're partly coming out of stealth, I think as well. What, what do we need to imagine? Um, how how does your sensor look? How does it work? Of course, we're in an, an audio format, so you have to talk visually. Yeah, I can't show you them. Yeah, you have to to talk about it as if you're showing it to us, and and just for us to imagine, and we all close our eyes, and you take us to a, a field to like how, how does it work, or how do, should we imagine a sensor taking uh, taking these kind of measurements, and where do we read it? What do we do with it? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll start from the fact of, of where these sensors came from again in the biomedical space. So if you can imagine at the moment what these sensors were uh, are used for in, in, a, in a commercial way is to be stuck. Uh, they, they, these are similar sensors, okay? Not the same, but they're similar sensors um, that are uh, stuck underneath a patch onto the skin Mm -hmm. And they read passive sweat, so the sweat that we uh, we uh, sweat twenty four hours a day, not the sweat that you you sweat when you're you're exercising. So they they sit there and they they recognize a very specific substance um, twenty four hours a day. They're about one centimeter by one centimeter, and uh, they have in the center of them a. Uh, a an even smaller area uh, which picks up uh, the the sweat, the passive sweat, and reads what that substance is. Now, all all we've done is create new sensors that are similar size, um, and in the middle of the that sensor, it will just recognize one specific soil parameter, and so. Now, if you're picturing this one centimeter by one centimeter sensor, um, how do you make that into a uh, a product um, that can be used and left in the field? Um, is the is is the trick? So, we did a lot of work in the lab um, with just the sensors, um, and we we did that for about a twelve month period, um, making sure that they were only recognizing the parameter that we were interested in. Um, and, and they, at the moment, concentrate on on soil organic carbon, on uh, actually soil organic matter specifically, on um, soil inorganic carbon so that you can get the total carbon picture. Um, uh, we've got a sensor for moisture. We've got a sensor for bulk density as well mm -hmm. so you can get tons per hectare output of carbon um and we, we're developing um other sensors but they're all in the same format one centimeter by one centimeter um and then we moved out of the lab and we started doing field trials in a in a gen one prototype and we slot these one centimeter by one centimeter sensors into something that looks like a usb port on a computer mm -hmm. um and that goes onto a probe, um, which we then put into the soil. At the moment, our probes, our Gen 1 probes, are about 40 centimeters in depth. Um, we would imagine that um, when uh, further development takes place on, on probes, uh, they'll be down to a meter. But they could, th these sensors could measure at pretty much any depth. Um, and so, the the sensor is connected to some wires, uh, which currently go up to an SD card, and we get a reading every eight hours at the moment. Um, and we just leave these probes in the soil to take readings over a period of time. So that's I, I hope that gives you a good picture of what these things look like. This uh, the probe is currently looking like a a plastic tube. Um, and on the end of that probe is these sensors stuck into uh, things that look like USB ports. And, and how difficult, I mean, you don't need a technician, I imagine, to put them at 30 centimeters. It's, it's literally that. You put them in the soil up to the, the um, wanted depth and, and that's it. 
and you leave them. Of course, now you might need to read the SD card at some point, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm imagining it, uh, they will be sending it wireless at some point, but that's it. You don't need to find a specific spot on the soil or, or a specific spot on, on your field. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea is that uh, when when this is fully developed, that satellites will be used to identify for a farmer exactly where they should mm-hmm. put the probes. Um, and we're working on that. But the yes, you you would just leave these probes in the soil for a certain period of time. Our aim overall is that um, when when probes are developed um, for commercial use, uh, they they would stay in the soil for, for example, two to three years, um, and they would just be uh, giving results. For example, for carbon, maybe once every three days. For example. Yeah. Um, so that you could get uh, a reading and, as you said, probably wirelessly up into the cloud. And, and how many do you need? You, I mean, that, of course, depends on the soil, but are there <clears throat> per hectare or acre? Uh, is that a, a, a large amount or relatively limited? Yeah, it really depends on what kind of system you're looking at. But as an estimate, you could say like one every two or three acres in horticulture, uh, one every 10 acres in uh, broad acre or crops, um, and maybe even one every fifty acres in grassland. Depending again, it depends on a huge of number course, of, yeah, yeah. of things. But um, that's just but an not, estimate that we've got not, at the not moment. Not one hundred per hectare. No, not one hundred per hectare. Uh, and again, we don't see these these probes as being something that um, that will be used on its own we would imagine that the combination between satellite technology and ground truthing using these probes over uh, you know over the globe uh, would enable us to get to a very very scalable system uh, over time yeah because who who do you imagine being or who do you think your customers will be is that the the farmer that wants the inside or which might be tricky um because yeah, selling stuff to farmers is very difficult, rightfully so, as their margins are super thin and everybody tries to sell stuff to farmers. Like, what do you imagine your your market or and, and your customers looking like? Sure. I mean, we our general concentration is to create the core technology, right? So uh, the, the the concentration from a from a hardware point of view is that we will concentrate on producing chips much like Intel does for the computer world. And we will license uh, the use of these chips and the algorithms to uh, third parties who have global distribution and can use current or new technology to get these out to a to a to, to a scalable um, angle. But from a market perspective, those clients uh, we 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 will also be helping those clients because we have a lot of connections in the CPG world. Uh, CPGs obviously want want such data at the moment uh, but carbon credits government subsidies even land valuation um, there are th- multiple markets that that uh, we will hopefully be licensing this technology into um, but we we don't imagine ourselves as a uh, as a hardware company that will be selling farmer to farmer that has never been the model um, We'd rather create a core technology that can be used really widely and scale uh, through current systems and through new systems that are developed. Um, the, the the problem has always been that the, that core technology has not been there, uh, and we we hope to be uh, that provider who 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 provides the soil health world with a uh, with with something that is is widely usable and and, and vastly affordable. And. How long does it take until we 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 get there? In the sense of until this is widely available, what what are timelines looking uh, looking at? What timelines are we looking at? Sure, I mean we've done a lot of the hard yards to tell you the truth, which is making sure that the sensors work, making sure that they can be incorporated in a field, and that uh, the in-field results um, are coming back uh, over over ninety uh, percent accurate against gold standard. The in-lab results are become, coming back over 90% accurate against gold standard, which is soil cores. Um, and so we 
we're, we're now actually already in conversations with uh, possible uh, licensees who uh, can make sure that this technology gets to market much quicker than we if we were just doing it on our on our own, right? Um, so we 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 hope that this technology is widely available in 2024. Wow, which is basically tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And what are main bottlenecks or what are main barriers you see in general for this kind of technology to to have the impact we all hope it will have? I think uh, for, for us, the correct partners are key here. Um, so one of the angles of making sure that we get out to as many groups as possible in a short period of time uh, and so that they can all come at this from a hardware perspective with their different vision um, that's probably the main bottleneck is making sure that we can have you know as many great groups involved in this as possible in a short period of time because those conversations do take time right um, and when you say the right partners, is there a danger? Like, are there uh, putting your skeptical head on pathways <laughs> that this could could be um, misused or not used in the most regenerative way? Are there? Yeah, we don't. We, we we don't want this to be shelved, right? I, I've been through in my years as a journalist looking at different technologies, many many different times, looking at really great looking technology and core technology like this. Um, which really gets bought up early, uh, exclusively, and then gets shelved um, because it could be disruptive. Um, so we want that's that's one of the main things we want to avoid at this stage. Yeah, no, of course. But are there? I mean, that that would be a very dark scenario, which happens. It a lot. happens far too far too much. But are there scenarios of? I'm just thinking like what, like in time, super accurate or sort in situ, super accurate, real time soil health data. Is there a dark side to that as well? Like are there potential risks or I, I cannot come up with any, but are there um, unknown unknowns? We don't want to like, what could that lead to on, on the wrong side of things? Well, I think, I think one thing that, that I've always wanting myself and I know that lots of groups in the regenerative world have also wanted is is really full transparency as much as possible and I think rather than than uh, suggesting that a specific system is always going to work for improving soil health um, in every single area and every single crop in every single region the ability to agnostically measure output-based results um, from from a technology that is 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 accurate and affordable cuts through the possibility of there being dark sides right um, because the dark side to me is the ability basically to greenwash regenerative um, because of a lack of accurate scalable data that shows where the soil health is improving or not. And so if if that gray area um, stays where it is now, regenerative is in danger of becoming uh, the easiest thing for people who are not being uh, soil friendly uh, and, and using you know the systems that have damaged the soil for so many years to greenwash as much as possible. Yeah, I've seen the, the, what is it, the glyphosate renewable, renewal group in, in Europe hosting, I think, an event in Brussels. We, we should actually all go and just ask really difficult questions. Absolutely. Um, to, <laughs> no, seriously, like it's in their invite, it says conservation agriculture and regenerative agriculture are ways to, of uh, no-till, of course, very specific language use, and then to uh, maximize the impact or something on, of pesticides and stuff. And yep. The moment they start using that language, it just gets very tricky. It also it means does. we're getting somewhere, but it also means it gets very tricky. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would say that this kind of hopefully cuts through that that possible dark side of of what's happening at the moment. Um, the 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 closer we can get to full outcome based transparency, the better. 
Sorry, I have the exact language here. Conservation agriculture and regenerative agriculture are two of the systems based on no-till farming, which is not always true, but okay, that dramatically reduce the carbon footprint by tr transforming the soil from a carbon emitter to a carbon sink. Okay, so far so good. Counteracting soil threats and increasing soil's capacity to retain nutrients and water, optimizing the amount of fertilizer needed to feed plants and the pesticides applied to them. At least they didn't hide their agenda. I mean, the, the group is literally called the Glyphosate Renewal Group. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still a bit scary. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the, the, the strange thing is that some of the methods that uh, are currently used may be uh, more beneficial to soil health and that we don't understand yet, right? Um, but we all know that, that, that regenerative methods and um, other, other systems which really improve soil health uh, don't involve... Um, uh, huge input, huge levels of inputs. Yeah. I, I think we're all aware of that. And, and over time, in many cases, especially the chemical ones, zero. And and so it's, yeah, it's fascinating. But I, I do agree with if soil health was easily measurable, then yeah, a lot of this interesting claims could have been, could be countered very, very soon. I'll put the link to the event below, by the way, if somebody wants to, in the, in the show notes, if somebody wants to go. Uh, let me see if the date still makes sense when it comes out. Um, I know it's in, a, in in 11 days. I don't think the interview will be out there, but um, I hope somebody will go and ask complicated questions about health and, and things like that. But it could counter things like that. It does mean that we're getting somewhere, but yeah, the, the transparency is just the same on the nutrient side and the health side. Like what's in our food also has basically not been researched or not very, uh, very poorly. And also there, I think we're going to see a lot of development. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah, 100%. I think there's going to be all sorts of things going on in that space. And is this technology potentially usable for that as well? Or that's just too far down the line? To know oh, what's in your food to measure certain phytonutrients and all, all the, 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 the things we're getting excited about now in the region space on, on nutrient density and soil health? I'll, I'll, just, I'll just simply say there's a lot of potential. As you come from the medical space. Yeah, okay. So yeah. Let's, let's leave it there. Um and so what, I mean, how excited are you or what's the, because this has come from a very skeptical journey and, and deep dive into this space leading to founding a company and, and coming out of research mode, it seems. Uh, what is your current mood? It's, it's kind of euphoric at the moment. Um, <laughs> just to be, to be clear, the, uh, I was skeptical even going into uh, research and development that we could meet our targets within a uh, a specific timeline, right? And so when we started getting results back uh, within three or four months of the R&D phase starting for soil information, it was just, it, it was incredible, incredible to see the in-lab, uh, the in-lab accuracy. So, um, and then, and then there's that. There's always that stage, right, where you where you get to the end of the in lab phase or the the validation of in lab because we. It's great in lab, but doesn't yeah, and, it, and right? I've seen this so many times myself, and this is part of my skeptical nature. I'm like, yeah, it works in lab, but it's not going to work out in the field at all. Um, and so, when we got uh, we we got to the f the, the phase of validating because we got um, Texas A and M University to be our third party validators. Uh, for the UTD sensors, and they they validated the uh, the the in lab work, and we were getting um, you know our values of something like 0.97 and 0.95, and it was just fabulous. So we then went into our first two field trials. One was on the UTD, the University of Texas at Dallas um, campus. And one was in Costa Rica. Uh, we picked Costa Rica to be kind of our um, stress test, let's say, because uh, the Costa Rican soil was uh, mountainous. It was in the middle of the rainforest and it was on the side of a volcano, basically. So it, it volcanic soils uh, are really difficult for electrochemistry um, in general. And... So we did our first two um, field trials, uh, waited for the results that came come back, again, validate, validated by Texas A&M University as a third party. And 
uh, yeah, the most euphoric I've been in the last two years was to see that the results were uh, very similar to the in-lab results, uh, which means to me, after looking at data for far too long, that we had something that, uh, that could change how we look at soil um, and can actually really create average data over a long period of time um, so that you can actually create auditability. Because something I can clearly say now after looking at the data from these sensors is that if you take a time point measurement once or twice a year, which is as much as a technician or a farmer or a whoever else is going to get go get out into the field and take soil cores or, or with another method, you will never get an, a proper average of what's really the levels are over the year. Mm-hmm. And so the, the excitement of seeing what looks like, because when, you, uh, when I've seen this in the biomedical space, basically you see the heartbeat of glucose or the heartbeat of cortisol in the body. Um, now to see the heartbeat of carbon, um, and because we're measuring not just soil organic carbon, also total carbon. Um, and What's th- the difference just for listeners and myself? Sure. So soil organic carbon is, uh, or, or soil organic matter is what, what, we're, what we're measuring, which is one whole pool of carbon. Um, it's all based on uh, multiple uh, things like leaf matter and, uh, and, and uh, microbes and all of these things that go into the soil and they form uh, soil organic carbon, right? So that's that's one thing we're measuring is the soil organic matter part, which is one pool. And then there's the other pool, which is soil inorganic carbon, which is a, the, the mineralized form of carbon. So now with these sensors, we can see the flow between both pools and we can also see what both pools equal. So how much carbon as a whole of is is in the soil which we call total carbon so we've also got a total carbon sensor which picks up both inorganic carbon and organic matter on the same on the same sensor um, which gives you a better picture of permanence and sequestration as a whole which is what everybody's looking for yeah the permanent yeah. side of things yeah um and so seeing that heartbeat um has made me made me excited because as soon as you start seeing what's happening on a daily basis or a weekly basis with multiple multiple things that involve soil health uh that's that's when we can hopefully start to change things properly and and what would be your main message to the investment world to the finance world obviously without giving investment advice um but I always like to say, let's say, let's say we're doing this in a theater and, and the room is full, the, the, the audience is filled with people managing their money or, or other people's money. And, and we want them to leave the, leave the theater and, and go to work somewhere or invest somewhere or at least research somewhere and dig deeper. What would be your main message after this long research journey? And of course, forming a company, um, into, into the soil space where, where are excited spaces to look, where, where should people really dig? pun intended deeper or where should people maybe not focus so much yeah i I would i would say there's there's uh uh, the the key as a whole and this is not related to soil information necessarily is to invest in the in two things one is the core technologies that will give us a base to build outcome-based solutions right um, and there are many possibilities, right, across uh, um, nutrient density to contaminants um, to biodiversity to soil health. Every single one of those areas and more involved in the kind of ESG space have really poor focus on the core technologies for the measurement of them, right? There's lots of work that's gone on on the top, but very little work has gone on in, in investing in those core technologies. And those are the ones that will allow the system, the whole system above it to work. And then there's something out the other side of that, right? So there's, you know, there's all of that data that comes in and then those that data is used for carbon credits and subsidies and all of these other things. But there's also out of the, out of this raw data that, that comes out of these core technologies that are hopefully being built at the moment. 
um, is the ability to give that data context. Um, and at the moment, there's a lot of trying uh, trying to oversimplify so that you can get things to market quicker. But all of these systems are complicated in their nature, right? So, what, do you have an example of that? Yeah, I mean, with 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 soil health, concentrating on just SOC as a, a a focus for everyone's work is, in my opinion, totally insane, right? Because it is not an outcome of improving soil health just on its own. Um, it, there, there are many different aspects like things like fungal bacterial ratio and microbial biomass and and, and so many different aspects of soil health that need looking so at it. carbon is not, yeah it's, yeah, it's a proxy for part of it. Yes, it's a proxy for part of it. So you need a holistic um, view from the measurement technologies. Otherwise, otherwise we'll, we'll go down uh, a path of oversimplification, which actually won't lead to uh, much improvement, in my opinion. But, but you picked the specific... I mean, you had to, obviously, but at the same mm -hmm. time, you did pick a number, like a limited number of things you, you are measuring. Which, yes. Is that also in danger of oversimplification? Yeah, I mean, one of the, it, it is. And I think one of the focuses has to be on 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 making sure that we can have a, a agreement surrounding the core parameters that need measuring, which obviously is not one, right? Um, but it can't be probably 70 either because that will also be too difficult and too expensive uh, to, to be able to scale. So there's some sort of balance that has to be hit. Um, and I, I hope that that's something that can uh, can be done using electrochemical sensors as well. And and so you said that that's the one of the key ones is the, the core technology and then how do we give it context? And then I interrupted you at, at the simplification <laughs> one, but continue that thought. Yeah, so one of the one of the things that that we realized when we were building these sensors, um, uh, and when we were thinking about the sensors to begin with, was that it's great to have all of this raw data coming in. Um, what do you but do with it? Yeah. What do you do with it, and how do you give it context? Right, and so I remember a, a, a conversation with the guys in who were some of the MEPs who were talking about uh, the Green New Deal and soil and all sorts of things surrounding sustainable agricultural metrics. And two of the, the, the main things that came up in that conversation are, okay, if we're going to include soil in any structures, um, we need to be able to compare farm to farm and apples to apples, right? Um, so the ability to have a historical baseline for some of these parameters so that we can say we can see where farmers are on a journey um, and we can compare their current data with historical baseline data um, is really interesting because then they can say, yes, uh, this farmer has been doing a great job for 20 years. Uh, let's make sure we give them money, even though they've, you know, they've achieved what's close to an attainable level of soil health, or you know, even though that probably can never happen, but it's at least they're close to an attainable level because they've been using good systems and not only reward those farmers who are increasing from a very low level to a higher level. And so to give context to the averages and to also find out what is attainable, right? So in other words, what is attainable on a specific farm, uh, in a specific region with a specific crop uh, in a specific climate. Um, and so, uh, and, and that's, by the way, the same in any of these areas, whether it's soil health, biodiversity, it would be great to have historical baselines compared with what's attainable so that we can reward farmers correctly um, with whatever system, whether it's credits or, or subsidies or whatever else. Um, and so that uh, we... we uh, in the background with Texas A&M have created a historical baseline and attainable system for carbon, which is all over, we're, we're doing it all over the globe. We've got hundreds of thousands of data points that Texas A&M have collected. Um, and so the whole Using aim of that... the gold standard of lab. Yes, yes, because yes, of course exactly. there's no other tech. Yeah. Exactly. 
So uh, they've they've created what I believe is one of the largest ever um, uh, historical base uh, data databases, which we're working with them on. Um, and so I hope that will give context to all the raw data, not just soil information sensors, but any other raw data that can go into uh, into the system, uh, which is which is a vital piece um, uh, to to add that that context. And if we switch the, the the position a bit and put you on the investor side, and you had say a billion dollars or a billion euros to to put to work, um, of course, not asking exact euros amount or dollars amount, but what would you do? I would invest pretty much all of it in creating a base for uh, for core technologies for measurement and uh, and contextual data platforms across the board, right? across the regenerative board, whether it's regeneration in forests, whether it's regeneration in agriculture, um, there needs to be a stronger base for any of our work as a, as a, as a whole regenerative movement to scale. And so I, I would entirely focus on that whole space. Um, if, if I was, uh, just given a billion dollars tomorrow as a gift, which would be nice. And, do you see some efforts in that space? Like, do you see others, let's say, agreeing or joining you on that? Like, we, look, we really miss, of course, you have investors on board, but uh, also beyond that, we really miss that core um, base to, to start working from. I think people have started to realize, but it's come very recently. So it, it, a lot of the focus was on uh, how to, for example, get CPGs to start shifting acres over, uh, how many acres could be under a management for an ag tech company, you know, all of these things, rather than looking at this as a holistic uh, a holistic problem and what the solutions to that, that problem is. Um, and so uh, a lot of these groups, and I, I know a lot of the financial institutions have come at this looking at the whole space and saying, okay, we'd love to invest in it, but we can't. And the reasons that we can't is because there's no core core base to it that can make sure that it goes forward. So uh, I, I've just, as I said, I've spent the last seven years basically looking at that core base. This the, the 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 focus of soil information has been entirely on the core base for soil, but there's there's so much work to be done on on making sure that we have a platform to scale off of. Um, and I, I think there is some there's some shift in the investor sentiment towards understanding that, but, but it is only come probably in the last year, maybe. And, and is there a risk that, okay, we have this full transparency and can see that the, the soil's beating hard, basically mm -hmm. that we just don't care or we just don't, we just ignore. I mean, I have the feeling there is a lot of data, not cheaply available not maybe so accurately but in many cases on the nutrient side as well there is quite a bit of um, data out there and we choose to ignore most of it it is fair that like we create this full transparency we can map any soils on the planet and also properly reward farmers for even the work they did historically and then we just don't do it i am that's the one thing i'm not skeptical about um and, and the only reason for that is because when I've been working in the contaminant space um, for uh, for pesticides and looking at pesticide certification uh, and non-GMO certification and the the massive increase in transparency in the food sector on contaminants over the past ten years, uh, I would have said ten years ago that I wouldn't have expected that consumers and everyone would be focused on reducing contaminants and all of the brands would get on board. And, you know, I, I, I would have been skeptical back then, but once you get the ability to be transparent, it's difficult to go back to tell you the truth. Um, so I, I, I'm really not skeptical that people wouldn't act on, on, on core data. Um, as long as that data is, is, you know, not controlled by the same people who destroyed the agricultural system in the first place. Of course, yeah. And and then is there an argument or a scared of an argument to say, look, we just need uh, a significant level of this to feed the world or to, to keep these agriculture systems 
uh, going. It's just necessary evil. Is that something you're um, not worried about, but an argument you hear? Yeah, all the time. Um, and, and, and what's your response? <laughs> um, Asking for a friend. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a balance, right? Again, um, there. I, I hope, and, and whether this is going to happen or not, but I hope that some of the groups who have been involved in, you know, monoculture uh, systems that that have have reduced soil health will now be involved in the solutions to rebuild things as well. I don't think that you can just say, okay, let's exclude lots of these groups um, because you, you never know how much of a part of the solution groups are going to be going forward. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I'm on the fence on that one. And I want to be conscious of your time as well and, and let you go with one last question, which usually ends up not being the last one. Um, <laughs> so just listeners, a warning, we might go down a rabbit hole sometime. Um, but if you had a magic wand and could change one thing overnight, I mean, I have an idea what you're going to say, but might, you might surprise and say something completely different. It could be anything. It's literally magic power, but it's only one thing. What would that be? I would totally change the way that our food system currently works um, and replace it with a system that is both healthy and beneficial to uh, to the world that all farmers rely on, which is soil, biodiversity, and everything to do with regeneration. And I'd also ch can I have two wishes? Is that okay? Yeah, because this first Thank one you. is a bit vague. Uh, we have to. Yeah, yeah, that's why I wanted to go a bit go, deeper. Go for the I wanted one. to go a bit deeper here. Um, I, I think it would be re really vital um, for the to have the ability for consumers to fully connect through transparent data to the food and agricultural system so that everyone understands that things can be actually personal. Because I find one of the biggest problems at the moment is that there's a massive disconnection between people and how their food is grown and the systems that they're grown in and what's going into their body as a whole. So the ability to make sure that consumers could connect and push the system in the correct direction. And this, this involves not just consumers, but financial institutions and everyone, because when you start to make things personal, things change. Until it's personal, it's just a load of more information that just floats through one ear and comes out the other. So the, the, the more personal we can make this whole process, the better. Um, so I'd, I'd like to personalize the food system, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think the angle there of health, at least that's what I'm saying we are all, but many are hoping mm -hmm. for the health and, and the, 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 the chemical side or the non-chemical side and nutrient density and, and, of course, the soil health that's connected to that is so exciting because it makes it personal for most people, even if you Absolutely. don't really care or don't have time to care about soil health and biodiversity and water holding capacity and carbon and, and all of that, you still, in many cases, care greatly, of course, about your and, and your family's health. And, and that group is a lot bigger than the soil geeks, I think. I think you're completely right. And I'll give one example of that, of personalizing data. We, I was part of one group who did uh, testing on most of the Japanese parliament members' hair for uh, different I really didn't know where that sentence was going. To. Yeah, yeah, different, I mean. For different toxic chemical contaminants. Because you can see that in your hair, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we we tested member of, many of the members of parliament who had been very slow on shifting um, shifting policies on. Uh, and of course, when you offer them, let can I test your hair? Most people say yes, of course. Because exactly, yes. exactly. And so we did that, and we came back with all sorts of interesting results for them. All was kept confidential. We didn't we didn't um, publish still, yeah. with, without their. Um, Authority. Most of them said, yeah, it's fine to publish our results, but some of them didn't. And the, the shift in regulations after that testing came out, after lots of the consumer groups, lots of the agricultural 
you know, uh, groups in the regenerative space having campaigned on all sorts of sub subjects as immediately you made it personal to each and every one of those Japanese parliament members, things moved a hundred times faster. That's a fascinating approach. I yep. hope that the people of regenerate America are listening. I mean, it's amazing to bring Will Harris to the Capitol, et cetera. Yep. Um, but to test the hair, like who would say no to that first of all? And then second, who wouldn't like to know results? That's very interesting on the farm bill that's coming up. And, and of course, cup as well in a couple of years in, in Europe. Um, yeah, yeah, actually, actually those parliament members who tested their kids as well were the ones who took the most action. So there we go. Okay. So lesson learned, make sure you include the children as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that's fascinating. Yep. Thank you so much for that, for, for the whole thing, but also for that last, uh, little little nugget and thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and share on, on a long journey but still feels very early in a new phase of that so i hope to be following that over time and thank you for the work you do thank you very much it's been a pleasure Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you liked this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.